Raven Chacon, Terrence Blanchard, Jesse Montgomery, and Black Violin. These are just a few of the artists featured in Noteworthy Stories, a new series from WDAV Classical Radio that broadens our view of classical music by shining a light on the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. I'm Loki Karuna, host of Noteworthy, and invite you to check out who is Noteworthy this week and to catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Hey y'all, Loki Karuna here, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, especially a day late. I think I may need to make this a Thursday podcast uh, in the coming weeks and months, considering the way my schedule has been looking, but y'all are here every week, no matter what day this gets uploaded. So thanks again for being a vital part of this project and its overall mission. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show built to decolonize classical music. Every week I come here to the mic to offer some brief thoughts on what's going on in the world of so-called classical music. I share dialogues with folks both in and outside of the industry to offer perspectives on the work that's being done to broaden the conversations surrounding the art form. And I offer a weekly Triloquy, keeping things true and real, just as this podcast was created to do. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to see some of the folks who've made it possible, to check out past opuses, and to contribute to the show, just visit the website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Before I jump in, I want to offer a very special thanks to the Family Crest. They're a band that blends all sorts of musical styles and genres, from American folk to indigenous to rock and blues and even Western classical. They played the Turf Club in St. Paul last week, and they were gracious enough to offer me a special shout out from the stage. I was really touched. So shout out to y'all for your incredible work and for your support of the show. Be sure to check out the Family Crest because they're doing some really incredible stuff out there, blending all sorts of styles and genres for audiences everywhere to enjoy. I'm not in St. Paul right now. I didn't envision this show being one that's recorded on the road, but that's what's been happening in this fifth season. I'm connecting with you today from rural uh, Texahoma, I'll, I'll call it. My partner's grandmother passed away about a month or so ago, so I'm here supporting him and the rest of his family for her funeral and uh, for the internment that happened earlier today. She was laid to rest outside of Paris, Texas, uh, but I've been spending most of the trip in and around Hugo, Oklahoma. So rest in peace and rest in power to Wanda. Many of you uh, continue to comment on how the spirit of this show and my general approach has changed since uh, I encountered Buddhism a few years ago. I'm really feeling that right now. Once upon a time, the thought of being in the rural South would have triggered me <laughs> beyond belief, especially in Texas. But on this trip, 
I've been enjoying the sounds of the cicadas, you know, the old country roads. We went to um, an old country restaurant where they had a salad. I could maintain my plant-based diet, but um, it, it's really been fun. I even bought myself a cowboy hat, if you can imagine. So as we all continue to think about decolonizing classical music and navigating our own freedom and liberation in a general sense, I think it's important that we learn to appreciate the process and uh, all of our surroundings along the way. Working to change the world and our surroundings can be extremely stressful work. I know if anyone knows, but if we center the stress and the frustration, we're actually letting the status quo have control over our minds in a way. In today's Triloquy, I'm actually going to speak to one of the things that almost did that to me <laughs> this past week, something that I could have let rule my mind, but something that uh, I'm going to create some good out of instead. So I'll speak to that a little later. I'm also going to share a recent conversation that I had with Darren Isom, who is doing some incredible work where many of us can't, or I don't know, simply won't. But first, I want to address a recent article published by The Pitch KC. If you've been listening to this show lately, you're probably familiar with the story of Joshua Jones and the Kansas City Symphony. But just in case you aren't familiar with what's going on, I'll offer a quick catch up as it was published by The Pitch KC last week. It says here, in September of 2020, percussionist Josh Jones became the first black tenure track musician in the Kansas City Symphony's history. Uh, and the group was founded in 1982. Uh, Josh was denied tenure earlier this spring, sparking outrage not only among Kansas City's local music scene, but the orchestral community on a national level. So in this article, uh, Josh speaks out for the first time. I'll let you find this article and read the whole thing on your own, but there are a couple of things that I'd like to highlight here. Being the uh, group's first black tenure track musician, I'm sure you can imagine that his presence was disruptive for many people who aren't used to us Negroes being around. And uh, Josh highlights uh, 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 several instances here, and I'll highlight just a couple of them. Uh, so here's the first. I'm reading from the article. It says, still unfamiliar to many security guards, Josh followed a strict routine for performances entering from the stage door, the same stage door. According to Josh, one evening, security asked him if he had entered through a different door. Josh replied, no, quote, they then showed me a photo of a black person wearing a hoodie and jeans in the parking lot entrance and said, this isn't you. And I again said, no, I don't even drive. Uh, those are words from Josh uh, continuing in this, in this article. It says on another evening, Josh arrived with his partner and instead used the box office entrance to receive her ticket. Despite showing his official ID and being in concert black attire, a whole tuxedo and everything with his stick bag in hand, Josh says the ushers insisted that he was not an employee of the orchestra and that he went through the metal detector, that he should go through the metal detector. Uh, this is Josh speaking, quote, Musicians never have to go through the metal detector. That's not a thing. After several back and forths, a staff member recognized him and confirmed that he was a member of the symphony. So that's that's just a couple of the uh, issues that he dealt with there. Of course, the issues don't just exist uh, with auxiliary staff like box office attendees and security guards. Um, Josh speaks to some issues that he had with uh, musicians as well. I'm going to continue reading here. It says, during a performance with the 
Kansas City Ballet, Jones's colleague was playing a snare drum in need of minor tuning and didn't sound as good as the previous performance. Responsible for instrument maintenance, Josh mentioned he would tune it during intermission after the drum would no longer be used for the remainder of the show. Uh, Josh's tenure committee chair approached him uh, to ask what he was doing while tuning. According to Josh, the tenure committee chair began raising his voice on stage um, after his explanation, quote, uh, from Josh. He then began to use a nasty and aggressive tone with me, stating the courteous thing to do would be to ask the subs if it is okay to tune the drum and not just tune the drum. You've had four rehearsals and a concert, and now you decide the drum doesn't sound good? Think. Jones says, I felt terrible. So maybe some of you are surprised by these stories, uh, and there are many more, but honestly, it makes perfect sense to me. What also makes perfect sense to me is the deafening silence from his former colleagues, including the chair of the so-called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. For me, Loki, a part of decolonizing classical music, is coming to terms with the fact that the majority, maybe even more than 90% of orchestral musicians just don't care. They aren't there to change the world. They aren't there to shift the status quo of orchestral music. They're simply there to make their money, to perpetuate the Eurocentric culture of classical music that breeds issues like these, and to pretend to be, quote unquote, good people along the way. If you're listening to this, I dare you to find a member of the Kansas City Symphony and to press them. You can go on their website. If you live in Kansas City, I'm sure you have some proximity. See what they really think. Ask them why they're so silent on this issue. Where are the think pieces from the orchestral musicians speaking up for, for Josh? Help them understand that the racism and the anti-blackness that Josh experienced on this job was due in part to their complicity. It's hard to say what Josh's future will be because, listen, getting a job in an orchestra as a musician is damn near impossible these days. The level is so high, everyone is good, and it's, it's really just luck of the draw and fortune at the end of the day. I've done it. Many other black musicians have done it. I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible, but it is very, very difficult. I'm chanting for Josh every day and hope that he'll find a way to turn this poison into medicine. I'm also chanting for the Kansas City Symphony. I had an interaction with their music director many years back. Uh, that I won't share here in the spirit of uh, Bodhisattva never disparaging. But if you catch me somewhere in person or offer to buy me a drink, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll divulge privately. But um, until then, as all of you know, I love uh, digging in and finding points of critique that I don't see other people identifying. And before you know, I go here and, and offer this further critique, I, I need to repeat myself. I love Josh. He's one of the homies. He's in my cell phone. I could call him right now. All of that is true. And what's also true is that I wish that this tell all were done on a black platform first. It's important for this story to have gone out in the first place. So I'm grateful to the Pitch KC for covering it. But I also think that this story could have grabbed the attention of more black people, especially black folk outside of classical music, if he had engaged the many blogs, the black vlogs, news outlets, magazines, radio shows, podcasts, YouTube channels, all of these other black mediums that are desperate for stories that actually matter to us and highlight the unique intersections of the continued black struggle in America and the diverse world around us, including so-called classical music. Yes, of course, I would have loved <laughs> for the first tell-all to happen on Triloquy. I'm not going to try to be coy, but this podcast aside, 
there's classically black, there's melanated moments, there's relative pitch, shout out to Lauren Green. There are so many shows that could have benefited from the exclusive from Josh. If you're black or a member of another historically marginalized community, please don't forget about the people in your community when you're going through something. If something notable or attention grabbing happens to me in the future, please know that I'm going to utilize the opportunity to bring attention to a black medium first. We even see this with bigger celebrities in our field and even beyond so-called classical music. How many times have you seen insert black composer, insert black celebrity, insert black whoever, run to the New York Times or to the Washington Post or or to the uh, LA Times for a uh, feature while telling black journalists and content creators that, oh, they're just too busy for an interview or they don't have the time, their schedules are packed. We're good at pointing out systemic racism from white people, but we got to point the finger at ourselves as well when it comes to things like this. Again, this is not hate or shade to Josh by any means. It's simply an identification of how the decolonization of our existence is hard work and it's work that starts with us. I try to check myself every day and I hope that you will continue to try to check yourself as well. And with that, <laughs> I think I'll uh, go ahead and jump into this week's interview featuring Darren Isom. So uh, very grateful to have gotten a chance to chat with him. So if you don't know who Darren is, Darren is a partner with the Bridgespan Group based in San Francisco. In his role there, he advises mission-driven organizations and philanthropic foundations in support of equity and justice and supports the firm's work with arts and cultural organizations. He co-leads the firm's commitment to advance racial equity and philanthropy and is also the host of a podcast called Dreaming in Color, Creating New Narratives and Leadership. It offers leaders uh, of color space to share how they have leveraged their unique assets and abilities to embrace excellence, drive impact, and more fully define what success looks like for us. We have a really incredible conversation that I hope y'all will enjoy. And to get us into the conversation, I'm going to shine a light on a black composer whose music uh, is being celebrated over there uh, in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Shout out to Xavier Music. He was recently announced as the recipient of the third annual Emerging Black Composers Project. Uh, he's going to receive a $15,000 commission for a work that'll be performed by the San Francisco Symphony, I believe the year after next. I happen to work with Xavier and my duties as a board member of the American Composers Forum. In addition to being a composer, Xavier uh, is on staff with ACF um, and really I couldn't be more proud of him. Huge congratulations to Xavier Music. Uh, so here's a tune by Xavier for solo piano uh, called Somatic to get us into my dialogue with Darren Isom. Hope y'all enjoy this musical excerpt and hope y'all enjoy the chat as well.
I grew up in New Orleans, it was 80s, 90% black, 80% black, right? Um, which is another story my mother shares. So that was very unique. My mother, New Orleans is getting gentrified. We joke that there's some people in white, in the, white people in New Orleans that my mother said without skipping a beat yet, it feels like the city I grew up in now. I mm. didn't never realize, like we grew up in a very black New Orleans. It wasn't always like that. And, um, but what that meant was that there were you know, a minority white population. All white people that stayed in New Orleans when desegregation happened were progressive white Jewish folks, white and Jewish folks. Um, there's an intersection there, obviously, but white and Jewish folks who were extremely progressive, extremely wealthy. And I realized I normalized that is what white people were. Hmm. Right? Like, I, you know, that was, I, and I remember going off to college. I went to Howard, school at Howard. I met someone who was at Georgetown. So once again, I went from New Orleans to D.C. Once again, a city of wealthy, progressive white people, right? Who understood culture and arts and all the things. And I met this one kid. I think he was at a GW, maybe, or American. I can't remember what it was. But he was Republican. He was a student in college. And I remember asking my friend, I was like, wait, wait, wait. They're Republicans that go to college? Like, it was, <laughs> yeah, it just blew my mind. Like, I, I, I thought that was the whole point of education, <laughs> education right? Like, because for me, Republicans were like the poor white people who lived out in Metairie. <laughs> right like, I, didn't, I didn't know that but like they live with it and then i met this guy who was like a millionaire and he's republican and i was like wait wait, wait. there are rich people that are republican and my friends were like where have you been yes you you may know the five limousine liberals that exist in the world but that's not the norm right and so for me i grew up with an understanding that from a cultural perspective being rich being wealth wealthy being you know, cosmopolitan city dwelling white people meant that you appreciated the arts at its most basic small b right level there mm-hmm. right like but the Schuyler sisters were leaving upper east side of manhattan to go down to the west village to figure out what was going what was good right like yeah. they really yeah. so i had a different appreciation of what arts and culture were and who were uh, and, uh, and from an, a white audience perspective who was the white audience i cared about i never cared about the rich white guy who was first generation wealthy and had season tickets to the opera as a way of demonstrating their wealth. That, that never, that, that I never had any interest in, you know, <laughs> that person, right? Like they, they uh, and their perspective on what was quality arts was never of any, they could, what do they know about what quality arts is? Like they, they needed to spend a little bit more time in the world to be acculturated to understand what art is. And so I think you see that within the philanthropic world as well. You see different, different definitions of wealth and and playing out from an artist's perspective you definitely have a lot of folks who are new money that are investing in the arts as a way of demonstrating their wealth and their importance right but with no true sense of what the arts are what purpose they serve and in fact even a contradictory sense of that like these are people who like they don't want the opera to get too diverse because mm-hmm. all that money to be sitting amongst black people right <laughs> that's that represent the same symbol of wealth that they were hoping for. Um, and so I think you have to be able to navigate those worlds properly and think about who you should be caring about and who are the people that are your allies in that space. Yeah, I'm, I definitely want to uh, spend a little time talking about philanthropy, but I want to pull on the thread that you you just revealed there. You make me think, I guess it would have been 2007 when Obama ran for president the first time. That's when I realized there were people my age who were Republican. You know, I wasn't even thinking about it from a a racialized point of view. I was thinking it from a generational point of view. I was like, wow, you can be young and in college and even struggling and be Republican. That that, that was something that, you know, a a light that turned on. Why, Why is that specific conversation important from your perspective? Why is it important for 
uh, black folks, people of color to understand that that nuance? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I joke all the time that so much of my life, one, shout out to my parents. And my parents did a great job, I think, of, you know, I mean, you, you, as you get older, you realize your parents were doing a good job, even though I'm gener- generation X, and my parents were totally neglecting the hell out of me. But, but <laughs> even in their life, <laughs> and we're fine with that. Generation X has trauma stories that we're completely fine with. Like, we, we're fine with being not remembered. It's completely fine, right? Um, but I do think that I realized that my parents were giving me narratives to live by that gave me a sense of safety in the world, hmm. right? And in America being a very unsafe place, sometimes those narratives had to be completely false narratives, right? And we're surrounded by false narratives. America is a false narrative, right? And so it's fine to tell a story and make up a story that one is going to bring you some degree of comfort. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I, 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 I'm in awe of how my parents had me normalize things as a way of giving me a sense, an understood sense of self-worth and purpose that I didn't realize I was normalizing awkward things. Like I joke all the time, I, I, I swam my freshman year at Howard on the swim team. So we get there, you know, it's all these, Howard at the time may still be the same. It was basically a campus of wealthy black kids who spent their entire lives surrounded by white people and wanted to have four years of peace, right? So you, you get you get to Howard's campus, you're on the swim team, you know, your, your coach makes some joke about black people not swimming. And you're like, well, what do you mean black people don't? Your parents have created this world where black people were swimming. Like you're on the swim team. You, all of us, these, these narratives, like you didn't even know these were narratives, right? Uh, and so I think that we've created some degree of narratives around white people as well uh, as a way of both protecting us and figuring out where our allies are. I remember growing up very keenly. I would vote with my grandparents who were very keen on all of us voting and know them, knowing the importance of voting. And I remember going, and of course, everyone voted separately because women didn't want the men to influence how they voted. I assure you, they were all voting for the same person, but they, they so we go with them to the election. And my grandma's looking down, she's like, now remember, we're Democrats. Um, and it's because Democrats care more about working people. Republicans care about one thing, money, mm. right? And interestingly enough, this was my wealthier grandmother. This is, she was very wealthy, right? But like the, in her mind, that was so completely unchristian. This, this obsession with money and wealth. And also it was so new money in her mind as well, right? It's like, it's when you're new to money and afraid that it's fleeting, that you're that obsessed with wealth, right? Uh, which is a sign of not being wealthy in her mind, right? And so it's interesting, like how you, she created all, the people created all these various narratives around you to give you some degree of comfort. And this is why I have my own podcast, uh, Dreaming in Color, where I get to interview all these black and brown folks who are leaders in the space. And it's interesting for us to deconstruct all the narratives we created or were given to us for us to be successful as a way of being, you know, it's a, we're thankful for those narratives, but you don't even realize like the worlds, the fake worlds that were created for you. And I joke, you know, Gen X should be called Generation Sesame Street, right? Like our parents sit us down on Sesame Street and went off to work. Maybe our grandparents would stop in occasionally. And we had no idea how radical Sesame Street was. <laughs> we're just a moment. We're sitting holding hands, saying songs. Everybody was different. And difference was beautiful. And, you know, so the, even like this idea of all these alternative narratives you were given as a way of creating roadmaps and, and, and mental spaces to live into a new world. And so I think that from a philanthropic perspective and from a leader perspective, it's the work becomes what roadmaps are we giving? next generation of folks to normalize their existences, um, to live. I mean, we, we had very, I, I feel like I had a very unique to some degree 
upbringing that was normalized, although that's how everybody lived, right? Um, and what a beauty that is. And what is my obligation to live that lifestyle forward and normalize it for others as well, right? I, I work, in, work in Memphis. And I remember one of the older women uh, working in, in one of the community organizations uh, was living, still living in California at the time, was living in Oakland and commuting back and forth. I would come in on Monday, leave out on Thursday every week. This is before COVID. So this is a thing. And, um, and she's like, oh, the travel must be really hard for you. And I was like, oh, I'm a consultant. I'm used to travel to some degree. She's like, no, the time travel. You're traveling in from the future. Wow. It's the future for her. Right. And there I was, my team would joke that I was this free person of color operating here in, in Memphis. People were like, I can't believe that you're out. You're just out in Memphis, like as a gay person. It's like, I have a whole husband. What else am I going to be? Like, I can't. I ain't got no options. Right. Like, but I think there's, you know, how do you normalize these things and see these things as, you know, not only beautiful things that are worth normalizing and celebrating, but paths for others to follow. I think that's kind of our, our, our job as leaders in this space as well. And for that person, I would definitely push back as someone from Memphis. I've been gay my whole life. I've had a gay atmosphere, a gay whatever my whole life. And it was fully Memphian and was fully embraced. 100%. I know. I, listen, you be, I mean, whereas you're normalizing certain areas, other people live in their own bubbles as well. So, I mean, I think that it's, you know, and well, interestingly enough, what was interesting within a Memphis example is that um, a lot of the things that would, a lot of the things that people would see as Cali, some people would see as California things. Others saw as a New Orleans thing. Mm -hmm. oh, of course, it is this free spirited New Orleans boy coming through, right? And so I think that it's just giving people a narrative <laughs> to attach themselves to, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, when you talk about these worlds that we create for ourselves, I can't help but to think about philanthropy. There has been, at least from my perspective, this idea that philanthropy is inherently benevolent. I've also uh, heard many people, especially lately, using uh, phrases like the philanthropic industrial complex, you know, this idea that philanthropy is just a different way of perpetuating harmful systems. I wonder what's your uh, reaction to that as, as someone who works squarely in philanthropy? Yeah, 100%. Well, I think first and foremost, it's worth this is wonderful. Um, Zorno Hurston quote that it's, um, she's critiquing religion. She's like, it's funny how people's gods always behave a lot like them. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's as well. I mean, like, if you're, if you're a problematic white person <laughs> who's unequitable and, and your philanthropy is going to be exactly that, it's not right. Um, and just the same, if you're a more compassionate and ethical and thoughtful person, then that's how your philanthropy is going to look, right? And so I think that trying to label something broadly is just problematic within America, given how diverse America is. I think that for me, one, I think part of the work is um, disrupting the definition of philanthropy and who's a philanthropist, hmm. right? I think that, you know, we have this definition of philanthropy as being pale, male, and stale. Uh, it's like literally these old white men who decide to give away a billion dollars once they about to die so they can get into heaven, right? Um, and I, <laughs> when all is said and done, at the end of the day, like I think black and brown communities are actually the most most philanthropic communities out there, right? Yeah. We give already a larger portion of our salaries and our incomes away, um, straight up give away. And also we just live more charitably and philanthropically as a community. And I don't like the idea of rich white people, rich white men particularly hijacking philanthropists, right? Um, as a title and, and, and from a nomenclature perspective. There's that. I do think that there is, I mean, as we think about the traditional philanthropic infrastructure as it exists, yes, I think that America is very interesting in that. I was just on a call earlier with someone uh, from 
Great Britain, and he was talking about the American philanthropic system. I was like, yeah, we guys, you guys have a strong central government, and we're social sector with social services. We literally have a system that's been set up to have people, people can amass large amounts of money. And there's an expectation that they, you know, do some government work, government-like work, if you will, social sector work with the money that they amass. That's an expectation that's America. It's problematic. All the systems are problematic here. None of them are working. So I don't want to romanticize anybody's oppression. Sure. Right? Because folks in Britain ain't feeling like they're so strong central government socialists. They ain't working either. Right? But I do think that our system works in a way. We're a vast country, a big country. So this idea of having one central government dictating how things work across the country is it's a hard concept to get behind. We don't even have an inclusive narrative as a country, more or less you know, a narrative around philanthropy and what giving should look like. All that to say, I do think there's been a shift in uh, the definition of good philanthropy. Mm. Um, and I think that's meaningful. Um, I think that historically, you know, we're riding on from a path dependence perspective, the whole Protestant work ethic belief, you know, the belief that in old Protestant times that wealthy people were people that were going to heaven. Like I'm talking about how people flip Christianity on its head, right? Because we all grew up in churches where the pastor every other week quoted the camel and I the needle and rich people going into heaven. That was like a standard Bible verse. Like I, I can, I can play very few Bibles. That one I got right. <laughs> the one where, literally, and within the Protestant work ethic world, like your being wealthy was a sign that you were God's chosen people, right, and that you were right. Um, and so I think that we've gone from this space where ultimately you're having a mass a billion dollars was a sign of your benevolence a sign of your intelligence, a sign of your worth, and your giving away the money was a way of your further living into that. Oh, not only is he a billionaire, he's going to give away some of his funds because he's, oh my goodness, how Christian of him, right? Hmm. Um, and I think that now we're more in a space where we recognize that you don't amass a billion dollars without harming the world. Full stop, right? So how do you use your philanthropy in some ways to repair the harm that you've created in the world and amassing a billion dollars. That's a very big shift in how you think about philanthropy and what philanthropy should look like. Because in one aspect, you're bringing, your positionality is a sign of intelligence, worth is importance, mm -hmm. right? And the other, your positionality is a liability, right? And as a result, you have to back away from how the money is given away because clearly, what you've learned in amassing a billion dollars is not helpful. If anything, it's contradictory <laughs> to what uh, you need to know to give away a billion dollars. And so I think that leads to a space where there's more community understanding uh, or community leadership, expectation community leadership. And you recognize that your role as a funder, you have the money. That's what you have, right? Um, not much more. The money's a lot, but the, 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 you, know, you don't have the brain power to work in the thinking. And so I get to work with clients from a philanthropic perspective who have more of that understanding of the work space, right? They understand that they have lots of money. They understand that the money that they have achieved is not necessarily always a function of hard work. Uh, it's a function of privilege um, and in many ways a function of oppression to some degree. Um, and so how it's more of a reparative philanthropic sector, right? How do you use your philanthropy to repair the harm that's been done and uh, your amassing wealth? Either you directly or generations before you uh, that you benefited from. So 
when you talk about good philanthropists, I can't help but to think about the question that Sister Soldier so famously asked on the Phil Donahue show once upon a time. She said, where are these good white people that you're talking about? So I'll, I'll, I'll flip that a little bit toward philanthropy. These good philanthropists that you know that so many people don't know and haven't had the opportunity to uh, interact with, what are they looking for? What are they looking to fund? And so I joke all the time that I, I quote my grandmother all the time when I call someone. I was like, oh, so-and-so, he's good white people. If everything existed, as my grandmother would say, right? <laughs> so I do think it's worth knowing that we do have allies in this space, right? Um, and there are, you know, white people that are doing their best to understand situations in, in the world and, and repair the harm they've done. And, and they produce a generation of children who are just as thoughtful, if not more thoughtful. Um, and, you know, there's a whole conversation about the sincerity of it all. And, 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 and that's another conversation for another day, possibly over cocktails. I think that when you think about good philanthropy out there, you know, part of this work is understood. There are definitely foundations and philanthropic leaders that are operating with a good ethos when it comes to what grant making looks like, good grant making looks like. And there are some tenets of good grant making, right? Good grant making is large amounts of money. Uh, it's unrestricted. It's long-term um, and it's done in a way that positions the communities as the leaders and the thinkers within the space itself, right? So it's meant to use the positionality that comes from a funding perspective to elevate a new system of a new system and world of leaders to drive the answers. And so you have lots of folks doing that work well. I think that, you know, I, I joke all the time with the, at Bridgeman, I get to work. We work, you know, many of us work in philanthropic consulting and advising, you know, you recognize the wealth inequities in America and how crazy they are, right? I, mean, I joke that Americans have no sense of numbers. And I mean, we throw around million and billion is the same. A billion dollars is a thousand millions, mm -hmm. right? Where people that are worth 20,000 billion, millions, 20,000 millions, right? And we're, we're arguing over a hundred thousand dollar grant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. You could lose half your worth tomorrow. And still be worth ten thousand millions. Mm -hmm. You're fine, right? And so, so much of this work is not only getting people to think differently about their work from a strategic perspective, but also just getting people to think differently about their work from a numbers perspective. It's about encouraging what I call uh, philanthropic inflation, right? Your smallest grant should be a million dollars. Just let's just start there, right? You have enough. <laughs> you know, um, there's no risk involved. There's no such thing as you know, absorptive capacity and all those things, like let's, let's eliminate the risk associated with the work itself. I think it's also, there are a few other myths that are problematic that we're trying to disrupt within the work and the thinking. One, there aren't leaders doing the work, which we all know it's problematic. There are a whole bunch of smart black and brown folks that are doing amazing work that have never really been highlighted or appreciated. So how do we make sure that they get the attention that they need and the funds that come with it? I think there is um, this, the, the one I hate the most is the, the, oh, a good nonprofit should be trying to put itself out of business. That's garbage. America's broken. America's always going to be some degree broken. Like literally, how do you treat like a hospital and be able to treat people? Like my uncle used to always say that oppression in this country is clever, hmm. right? We have to have organizations and people that act as stewards of issues. We're not going to solve racism in America in 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years. And whatever progress we make, someone needs to be able to steward it and monitor it. So how do we have organizations that can be around to exist and do that in a way that's smart and thoughtful? I think we've also normalized problematically a culture, a scarcity culture, right? Where we actually reward and, um, and fund organizations for doing a lot with a little. 
the number of really brilliant leaders, black and brown organization leaders who haven't paid themselves. What is going, like, that's what you're normalizing? Ain't no good coming from that, right? <laughs> this is not, these white boys out here paying themselves, will you please pay yourself, right? Or, you know, even philanthropic organizations or intermediate organizations that have starved themselves from an operational perspective to get the most money out the door as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to get the most money out the door, but I want you to be around. You need to be around, right? Like, you have to at least fund yourself in a way that you're uh, thoughtful and sustainable about your operations and are able to give out a lot of money, right? Like, I joke all the time, like, if Dick Cheney's going to live to be 100, some of us have to be at least around until 70, right? So, I mean, we got to balance that out, right? <laughs> sure. So we have to be setting ourselves up in a way that we're sustainable organizations, particularly given that I think that one of the biggest assets as a Black American is that we understand the fullness of time. And we understand as Black Americans that the success of our community, the world that we're trying to create, will not happen within our generation. Right? And we're the only community where literally a leader can stand up on a podium and talk about dreaming three generations down. And everybody clapped, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah my grandchildren, maybe my, maybe my great-grandchildren, right? Like, we're fine with that because we know that it's not, we're not going to solve these issues in 10 years. And so I think that we have to be, if we recognize that success takes time from an organizational perspective, we have to think about how we're building community organizations and leaders that can withstand the time itself. And we think about how philanthropy is there as an enduring force and not just a one-time grant amount, right, uh, to, to really not only prop up to some degree, but actually act as a foundation for this new world that we're trying to create and those new leaders we're trying to create as well. And I think that there are quite a few, more than a handful of funders and foundations that have that worldview from a philanthropic perspective and are trying to shift that uh, answer um, from a uh, philanthropic perspective. I think that it also speaks to what's normal. Um, I, you, know, you used to be able to give away money in ways that were problematic and Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's, it still happens clearly, but it's not, but people are looking at them like they're crazy, right? Like the, the narrative has shifted on what good philanthropy looks like in a good way. So, Yeah, as much as we're talking about um, black led and black supportive things, I feel like I have to name uh, the degree to which BIPOC has come to the center of philanthropy. And while, of course, we believe in uh, supporting uh, and platforming folks from all sorts of marginalized communities, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of data out there that points to Black people being further marginalized through BIPOC sort of initiatives. We've certainly seen that through um, things like affirmative action, where uh, white women receive more and are more likely to receive than uh, Black people, Black women, all all Black folks. I wonder how you engage that contemporary reality, how how you weigh in the historical reality and circumstance of Afro-Americans while honoring, you know, the the broader community, broader communities of marginalized people. Yeah. So totally, I think that we can acknowledge, for example, that certain... um, certain systems that were set up in many ways to benefit Black people have been hijacked to some degree by other marginalized groups um, or other groups, like once again, the affirmative action and white women, white women have benefited most from affirmative action than anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think there's also, there's ways that we can think about, how do I say this, a very nuanced conversation. So one, I think that there, as we become a majority minority country, we have to figure out the ways that we as people of color 
relate and interact with each other, not through white people, hmm. right? <laughs> we have to figure out our conversation. Like all these, all these terms are meant to mean not white people, but we don't even have a way of saying that, right? <laughs> so the term BIPOC, like, like you know, basically not white people, right? We don't, we don't have a way to say that safely, right? I think that we have a country where clearly Black Americans, as enslaved people from the get-go, were incredibly marginalized uh, within a system and bear the brunt of most of the oppression from a numbers perspective. Native communities, though, I mean, I joke all the time that like Black Americans, they try to take us out like it was it was unintentional. We just happened to be there. They were literally, literally trying to kill off the Native Americans. Like that was like that was the whole point of it, right? Like it was a it was a very different form of oppression. Right. Um, and so I think that there's there are all these oppression narratives that connect us more than we think. And my husband's Chinese-American, and I joke all the time how Chinese folks, and this is short lingo, don't repeat this, like I'm saying on the podcast, I guess it'll be repeated. But um, our Chinese, Chinese Americans were Black people out in California, right? They had all kind of Chinese exclusion acts, like my yeah. husband's grandmother lost, born in San Francisco, but lost her American citizenship when she married a Chinese national. Wow. Well, that, that's bold as hell, right? That's how much they hated Chinese people, right? And so I think that, that we have to figure out where there's some similarities from our oppression narratives and where uh, we can work together as non-white people, right, um, to leverage the fact that we're the majority, as opposed to our continuing to be um, um, marginalized, even within our minority status, as a way of not overcoming white minority at this point. So it's, I, I give the Brazilian example. As a side. I don't know if you've ever been to Brazil. But uh, whereas in the United States, we had a majority white country. And so any ounce of black blood made you black. Right. Brazil is majority black country. So any ounce of non-black blood made you not black. So it's basically this black ass country where no one thinks of themselves as black, except for like 10 people up in Bahia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a way of not making sure like you go to a family with the same parents, three children, everybody thinks of themselves a different racial identity. Right. That's intentional. Yeah. We're all five different racial identities. We can't group together. Right. Um, that 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 white minority becomes more of a majority sure. in that situation. Right. And so I do think there's a way for us to be very, very thoughtful. The whole BIPOC piece is around black and indigenous folks being you know, asserted as the, the most important groups, if you will, um, from a, a numbers perspective and, and an oppression perspective. There's a way that we can think about centering black people in BIPOC strategies, while also recognizing and appreciating the oppression narratives that we all share as people of color, uh, and there, where there's solidarity there and we should take advantage of that. So one doesn't cancel out the other for me. I think one actually supports the other. And I, I think it's also important for us to be thinking about where there are alliances, old and new, that we need to be making from an oppression story. I tell the story all the time, but when I left New Orleans in high school, I did the summer program in Miami, um, and uh, where I was teaching kids in Miami. And my grandma, my, my, my dad's mom, my wealthy black grandmother, her biggest fear was that I'd ever be in a world where there weren't wealthy black people around. Mm. It's a whole fear for a certain community of folks, right? And, um, and she was going to Miami where there wasn't that big of black middle class. And so my grandmother took me to the side. She's like, so you're going to be in this space where you might find yourself in places where you're the only black person there. And if you ever find yourself in a space where you don't feel comfortable, where you feel unsafe, uh, look for, she whispered, look for the Jewish people. The Jewish friends, sure. the signs in the South said no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. They understand, right? 
And so I think that, you know, and that was, you know, that was definitely the case in in Miami. (laughs) And so I think that we have to be thoughtful about as we are sending our future generations of kids into worlds that are more diverse, where they may not have the same Black community connection, how do we give them other communities that can connect to? And how do we give them forces that they can rally around and rally with um, to create um, some degree of impact and also feel some degree of safety and belonging? And particularly since we're all talking about non-white people. Right. So, you know, so that's my thinking there around that BIPOC piece. I don't I think we have to be really thoughtful and careful about not creating a game of oppression Olympics. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, none of us are doing well. We're all struggling. I mean, you, you start getting down to black Americans and you are going to parse between black men and black women. I mean, like it, it becomes, you know, or even we have black gay folks that ain't getting the love they need when clearly we're the most oppressed of all of us. We're being very often thrown into the bucket with white gay men. Clearly we don't want to be there. Right. <laughs> so, it's, so it's, it's, you know, I think that there's a, a way for us to think about what's the community of people of color, but as, as people of color, we should be thinking about the work and thinking about the world and how rallying, uh, how we use the data to inform that work, but also use the larger community to develop a narrative that's inclusive of all of us from an impact perspective. And I think through that conversation, it's important to note the uh, what I see as a responsibility uh, that Black folks have to take on. Among those responsibilities, I think, is healing. I think that's another hour-long conversation that, that we could dive in. But specifically when it comes, uh, you know, looping back to philanthropy and being funded, being competitive uh, in these ecosystems, what do you see as the responsibility of Black creators, Black professionals trying to exist in this field? Yes, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, like we're responsible for our own communities, right? So um, I think that Black creators, Black intellectuals, Black leaders need to just continue to be Black, need to continue doing all the things they're doing, right? Like I was on a call earlier, I noted that my grandmother used to always say that um, God's greatest gift to man was that of free will. Um, And our uh, if God wants us all to do the same, would made us all the same. It's that simple. He's God. That's how you can do it, right? But He chose to make us different for a reason. And our job was living our lives, living our life, the lives that we chose as beautifully as possible. Living as beautifully as possible is our gift back to God. It's a thank you for free will, right? Um, and so, for me, my question becomes: How all of us within our various, you know, casts and space in the world are living as fully as we can towards that common goal of Black liberation? recognizing it's a goal that requires different parts and different actors and different players and different roles. And how do we live as fully as we can into each of the roles that we've been given to make that happen, right? So all that to say is that I think the way that Black leaders and, and Black thinkers and intellectuals do that is by living fully into your role as a Black creator, right? Uh, living fully into your role as a Black leader as much as you can, right? It's the fullness of time. We all have a small role to play, but it's an important one. How do we live into that? I, I you know, I, I, do think, and this is one where I, you know, I feel like, well, let me just say, I do think there's a need for us as Black folks out in this space to take up more space. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that very often, um, like I was in a, a panel some months ago, um, and some white, a Black person, actually, there was a panel of Black folks, and one of the Black people out in the audience asked some question up and says, how do you deal with, how do you deal with white people, which is ever, <laughs> what a question, right? How do you deal with white people in space, which was Black leaders in? And I just said, flippantly, but tr- truthfully, like, at some point, you just have to, you can't pay white people too much mind. Like, you can't, you, you can't, you gotta ignore white people, right? Like, you can't, 
the, the white gaze is can be so crippling. It's something you just have to just let it go. I can't. Very often, I'm so not bothered by white people. I really can't be bothered with white people in general. And I think it's the ultimate advice that you can give someone. Like, really, live your life as fully as you can. Know that the answer you hold on to is the right answer, right? Um, <clears throat> and know how many people have sacrificed for you to be able to be in the spaces and the rooms that you're in. I think that where the advice that I give young leaders, particularly um, as they transition to leadership roles, I think that unfortunately, unfortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, so many of us within the social sector, within the civil rights space, within the social justice space, we've come up through the space as criticizers and being critical, right? Like our, our, our strength is in tearing things down, right? Like our strength is in saying, what's wrong? What's not working? That's, that's been our strength. That's been our asset. It's an important one. But there comes a point when you have positionality and power and people are looking to you to not say what's wrong, but what can be right. Mm. And so many of us have never trained that muscle. Our tearing things apart muscle, strong as hell. Right? Our building things muscle, weak. And you can't navigate the world where you're in some ways affirming power dynamics by never being constructive, mm. right? You have to think, what? Yeah, yeah, it's broken as hell. America's broken, been broken for a long time, <laughs> right? What do you build in its place? What do you say yes to, right? Um, and what do you create? And so I think that, and that, I think that so many generations have sacrificed for us to not be punching up, right? When you punch up, you affirm the power dynamic, right? Now, there's, I think there's no bigger flex than me to walk into a room and have a document there. Now, I'm not going to even go through what's wrong with this document. Let me, talk, let me create a new document. This is what we're going to do. That's a flex. Wow. Right? I'm not acknowledge this thinking you got here. This is so problematic on so many levels. But let's start with the blank sheet. And I'm going to tell you what the answer should be. This is what we're going to build. This is what we're going to create. And I think that's the flex that we should be taking advantage of. We're at tables now we've never been at. Don't come into the room critiquing. Come into the room with the answers. We call it in consultant called answer first. Tell me what an answer. Right? If you've got an answer, something's wrong, tell what should be there in its place. Right? And I think that's a very different way of thinking. I think that also requires a shift in your positionality and your shift in power. Right? Um, and so that's something I think that we should all be thoughtful about, particularly those of us in leadership spaces and creator spaces. What are creating? Right? I was in a conversation some months back with someone who was talking about how Black folks are really good, even Black Afrofuturists. Um, writers they just talk about the end of the world boy we love dystopian right <laughs> sure. can we imagine things working out mm-hmm. like we give so much energy and so much breath to things falling apart well what does it look like if things work out how beautiful is that and why are we robbing ourselves of that possibility well that's beautiful i'm gonna take that with me personally i'm, I'm gonna utilize that that mode of thinking i wanted to uh close up by acknowledging that so many people, especially Black folks uh, in these art spaces and even philanthropic spaces, are doing their work in places other than where they grew up. You grew up in New Orleans and you're you know, on the West Coast. I'm from Memphis. I'm living now in Minnesota, splitting my time between here and New York City. You know, there, There's so many people who I think resonate with that. What would you consider uh, a first or a second step for the person who doesn't have the historical connection to their community toward building that connection? How do you take a transplant, especially a Black transplant, and give them what they need to start to create those community connections that can lead to greater good? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I joke all the time that you know, I'm from New Orleans originally, grew up in New Orleans, went to college in D.C., went to grad school in Paris, lived in France for quite a bit, lived in New York for many years before I moved out to the West Coast. And the West Coast was a bit of a transition. Um, first few years, I didn't like it at all. I did not, I lived in San Francisco, did not like San Francisco at all. And I, I tell people that all the time. I just found California just so bizarre. It was like five degrees too cold, not enough to complain, but enough to be miserable. It was white as hell. San Francisco was so white. Right. And but where the black people, they're all in Oakland. I was like, why I got all black people quarantined in Oakland, right? <laughs> um, and then I visited Oakland. I was like, oh, that's why we're all over here. <laughs> it's wonderful over here. It's five degrees warm, it's flat, you know, all things. But um, and so even now I joke that I consider myself um a New Orleans expatriate. I've expatriated from New Orleans to California. So New Orleans is still home culturally, and whatnot, and so forth. But I'm definitely, I can't be anything but a Californian at this point, 15 years in. Right? Um, and so I think that one, when Folks move to new places. I think it's first and foremost important for them to appreciate the place that they're in, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think that so often people move to places and they're like, "Oh, I can't, I can't find good this there." I'm like, you know, you're not. San Francisco, Oakland will never be New Orleans. If I can find a good pot and somebody offer me a good bowl of gumbo, I'm good. By good, I mean decent, right? But you can't expect other places to reproduce what you come from. Right. And you have to appreciate them. You know, cities are like good friends. They all offer some they all offer something interesting and something different. So you have to take advantage of what they offer and appreciate that. I think. And with that, you're also in some ways honoring your cultural background. Right. Like your Memphis cannot be recreated in any random city. And that's fine. That's for the best. That's what makes Memphis. Memphis, Right. Um, And so but I do think that you in doing so, you honor the fact that what you come from has given you enough cultural grounding that you can acculturate into another place without losing who you are, right? I will always be in New Orleans, but I can live wherever. Like there's something at my core that's New Orleans. Because in many ways, New Orleans was enough. I chose to leave, right? Like New Orleans was enough, right? Culturally and otherwise. And I think that degree of cultural arrogance, and I'm using arrogance there softly, is great to have and important to have. Because I think that when you are steadfast and strong about where you come from and who you are, you can take on different things. You can meet different people. Right. Um, and you can appreciate other people for who they are without feeling as if appreciating another culture will make you somehow another diminish the love that you have for the place that you come from. It's the exact opposite. Right. Um, so I think that one, appreciating where you are, understanding the story of that place and honoring the story of that place as much as you honor the place that you come from um, is really important. And I think finding folks who um, both appreciate your upbringing, where you're from and what you bring to the table but also encourage you to hold on to it to some degree as well. There was a wonderful conversation I had with David Thomas, president of Morehouse some years ago. And well, he's president now, but the conversation was some years ago. <laughs> and, um, and he offered the key to success for personal color navigating the world professionally. The first was to find out what makes you different and hold on to it. I mean, find out what makes you different and be proud of that thing, mm. right? Secondly, was to find yourself at an institution, a company, an organization, that sees your difference as critical to success. Not just a nice to have, but without the thing that makes you different, they can't be successful. And the third was the one that I found the most interesting. And like was, my team was taking notes not to come on notebook at the third point. It's like, finally surround yourself with people that encourage you to hold on to your difference hmm. in, um, in service of success for the organization and in service of success for you. So I think that's very often you find yourself at a place that say they want your difference, you know, critical, but then all of a sudden you turn, you're trying to change to be like them, right? 
Um, and so I think that there's something that, you know, there's something powerful. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not rolling up into every room like I just rolled out of, of Carrollton in New Orleans, right? But I do think you realize that there's certain things that are, you take them with you everywhere. They're not, you don't want to lose them. They're, 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 they're a gift that others should benefit from. And figure out what those things are and finding ways to not only hold on to them, but even cultivate them and, um, and make them even more powerful, even as you're away from the place that things really important and meaningful too. Thanks again to Darren Isom for being on the show and for all of the work he's doing in philanthropy, in the podcast universe, and really in the arts in general. He's a vital part of the larger work of decolonizing the arts, and uh, we couldn't do this without him. The music that you heard coming out of our chat was another work by Xavier Music. Again, shout out to Xavier, a tune there for Woodwind Quintet called The Surface. So hope y'all enjoyed that as well. Okay, time for this weekly triloquy, and I'm going to try to keep it brief here. So as longtime listeners of this show know, I used to host an overnight radio show for American Public Media, uh, Music Through the Night. The job was incredibly difficult on the body and on the mind as well. And really, you don't have to take my word for it. Ask Scott Blankenship, a former co-host of this show. Ask countless hosts who have been in the booth all night long up there at American Public Media. It will destroy your mind. Not to mention the fact that it makes it nearly impossible to have a social life or to maintain a relationship when you're trying to hold on to that overnight schedule, sleeping through the days up all night, even on your off nights, you know, it's like living like a vampire. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the challenges that me and Dell have had in the past were rooted in my having to dedicate my entire life to maintaining an unnatural sleep schedule. So it, it really is not something to, to sleep on. No, no pun intended. Well, it was recently announced that American public media is going to be transitioning into voice tracked overnight. So pre-recorded overnights. And it was published that this decision was made for the sake of the host's well-being. I'm not going to lie. When I first heard this news, I was a little perturbed. <laughs> the fact that an overnight radio schedule is unnatural and harmful was not something that the higher-ups at the station didn't hear on a regular basis from me, from the people who came before me, the people who were doing the job at the same time as me. It just seems like they just didn't care that we were being destroyed for, for this schedule. Now, I understand that a change in leadership was actually the impetus for this change, which is great news for overnight hosts. But that doesn't change the sting that I felt and that I know many former overnight hosts felt as well. This is the question, though. What is there to be done with those feelings? I could have had an attitude. I could have posted something nasty on social media. But as I was speaking to you earlier in this opus, I decided to reach into my gratitude to create something positive from this. I am so grateful that I have those experiences that bred mental illness issues for me, 
that bred relationship issues. Um, it created an unhealthy relationship for me with sleeping pills, with weed and alcohol. You know, it's the middle of the day and I know I just have to go to sleep. So I'm taking any substance I can to get some rest so that I can be up all night. It was really a mess, but I'm grateful. Why am I grateful? Because I survived it. Moving forward, the hosts who voice track the overnights will have no idea what people had to go through uh, for someone to have the realization that that sort of schedule was unhealthy. Um, and in turn, you know, it offered the pre-recorded option for those folks. Maybe you can relate to this in a different way. You don't have to be or have been an overnight host to, you know, have gone through something that changed for people that came after you. Many of us have paved the way for people who have no idea that a way was paved. The difference is that we have the story and the experiences of perseverance. So whatever your headache is <laughs> this week, enjoy it and understand that through your current challenge, there's someone else who's going to benefit, including you eventually. This isn't about being a martyr. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. Being a martyr is definitely nonsense and most definitely when it comes to the professional workspace. But what this is about is understanding the true nature of our circumstances and having a broad enough view to identify the good that will come for ourselves and for others as well. It's like the Buddhist concept of lighting a torch when walking along a dark path with other people behind you. Not only do you light the path for the people that are coming behind you, you're lighting that path for yourself as well. So thanks so much for listening to this. I really appreciate each and every one of you who are continuing to support this show. It really means the world to me. What, what we go through every single day, every single week, you know, really can't be contextualized as just that bad a challenge. But I've dedicated my life uh, to flipping that narrative around and understanding that everything can be of use and everything can result and good again, not only for ourselves and for other people. And I'm just so grateful to continue to have this platform to share my experiences and my thoughts and hopefully to inspire you to a renewed way of thinking about things. Uh, I announced it on Facebook earlier this week and I'll announce it again here just in case you aren't connected with me there. Me and Dell are moving to the Big Apple and it's coming up quick. We're moving in about three weeks. So if you're in Washington Heights or in Harlem or really anywhere in New York, send me a note so that we can connect once all the uh, boxes are unpacked and uh, this baby grand piano is brought up <laughs> five flights of stairs. Look, well, y'all need to chant for me with that because I don't know how that's going to work, but it's going to work. I already know it. I'm ready <laughs> to make new friends in New York, to have more musical collaborations and to begin the next leg of uh, this journey of mine. So until next week, love yourself, enjoy your headache and stay on the path of liberation, personal autonomy, your mission, and decolonization. Love y'all. Peace.